we have the most binary conversations right now. You're pro-life or pro-choice. You're pro-Trump, you're anti-Trump. We have to have different kinds of conversations where we talk about why we believe what we believe. What are the values that, that bring us to that position? What are the life experiences we have? Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Linda Laurel. Welcome to Our Voices Matter, a podcast dedicated to empowering us all to better understand each other. Our goal, to replace fear with knowledge, disdain with respect, and hate with love, one story at a time. So let's get to it. Hi, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Our Voices Matter. Very excited to have with us today, Andrew Hanauer of the One America Movement. Andrew, thank you so much for being here and um, just tell our audience, first of all, what One America Movement is all about. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Um, One America is about fighting polarization in America today. Um, we are about uh, being a positive alternative to the sort of broken, divisive politics that we see in our country. So we try to bring people together uh, across divides, not just to talk, but to act on the issues that really impact our communities. Um, and how do you do that? How do you bring people together? So we <clears throat> we largely bring together religious groups. So okay. evangelical Christians with Jews and Muslims, uh, LDS communities, Mormon communities, um, you know, we, we bring together anyone who, uh, is sort of interested in engaging, uh, and we help them figure out how to sort of get over that barrier of, of not trusting, uh, another group at the very beginning. And then through working together, uh, we see people build really, really amazing relationships that they never expected to have. So what's your, what's your methodology? How do you actually go about the, the actual work? Yeah. So our, our belief is that action uh, is, is a really important part of this. Um, what we have in America right now is, is increasingly sort of what we would call singular and rigid identities, right? Everything about us, everything about who we are is boiled down to just, are you team blue or team red? Mm-hmm. Um, and when that happens, the, the way the science works of polarization is it creates these feedback loops where we get further and further apart. We say, I can't understand how anyone could be on that team. And because of that, I assume that they must have negative intentions. And mm-hmm. so I assume that I can't work with them. Right. And so we get farther and farther apart. Our work is about empowering what we call cross-cutting identities, which is I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat, but we both care about opioids or we both care about the homeless in our community. So through the action that we take together, uh, we're empowering those identities. So we bring people together. We say, what do you want to work on together? They work on it. Um, And then through that joint action and the relationships they build, they can actually have conversations about really difficult issues uh, where they are divided. So the organization is 17 months old now? Yeah, a little more. um, Just uh, founded in uh, spring of 2017. And what was the catalyst? What was, I mean, why did you decide to do this? So I think uh, like a lot of folks, the election of 2016 was a big catalyst. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, it wasn't about who won and who lost, but about the, uh, the tone and tenor in the country, um, the feeling that uh, we were becoming fundamentally and irreconcilably divided from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, a group of religious leaders started having conversations about what they could do about it. And, and what they really came to a point of saying is that you can't separate the polarization from the issues that are really impacting our community. You can't go into a place where, where, where people are being shot by the police, 
uh, or where people have lost their jobs to China or Mexico or where people are, are having their kids die of opioids and say, mm-hmm. you know, the problem is you're not listening. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we uh, felt like we wanted to do something that would not just bring people together, but really act on the issues that, that are challenging us. Tell me your backstory. What were you doing before this? And um, what what's your what were you doing before this? And what's your skill set that has really that has allowed you to create this this organization that is is national now? You're in multiple cities in such a short period of time because you've done a lot in 17 months. So thank you. I appreciate you saying I have a skill set. <laughs> um. We all have skill sets of one one kind or another. So I think for me, a lot of it starts personally. Um, I heard uh, Arthur Brooks, who's the head of the American Enterprise Institute, interviewed on the radio recently. And he said that, you know, any, anyone who's being attacked in America today is probably someone he loves because of who his family is and who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel the same way. So I grew up in a, a secular, uh, very liberal Jewish home, um, a not religious. Uh, I became a Christian in college. Uh, my wife is from uh, a, a very rural uh, southern part of the country. Um, her family members and my family members don't always vote the same way, put it that way. Um, uh, I have friends and family who are Jewish, evangelical, Muslim, African-American. My godsons are African-American. No matter who's being attacked, it's someone I love. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like that um, that perspective uh, allows me to, uh, I think, build relationships with people personally across divides. Um, and I think the organization is is trying to reflect that in its nature uh, as nationally. I love that. Thank you. The the varied background that you have and looking at it from a personal perspective. So is there, you know, one of the things that that we do here on on this show is ask our guests to share either a personal or a professional story of a time in their lives when. Um, when you thought that you were the other, when you felt mm. like you were the other, mm-hmm. you just gave a, um, a really beautiful sort of um, summary of all the different perspectives that you have because of the life that you've lived, that right. you are living. I would imagine that you've had some other experiences. <laughs> so would, can you pick one or two to share with us and let us know kind of how you have navigated that and then what you learned from it? I think that's great. I mean, it's a great question. I'm, I'm glad that you're, you guys are asking that of folks. I think it's important because I think people often don't, don't think about how other people might feel in certain mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very lucky. I think that in many situations, I don't feel othered, um, in the sense that I can choose, um, uh, sort of how I fit in on a deeper level. I don't ever feel like I truly fit in to any one group because of the sort of background and, and perspectives that I have. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's a, a feeling, I think, that, that a lot of people have a tribe. And tribes are, are very useful and beneficial. They give us comfort. They give us security. The people who come bring us food when we're sick, um, especially for groups that have been marginalized in American society, um, having a tribe is protection, it's safety, uh, it's community. Um, I think for me, I don't ever feel like I really belong in any one tribe, um, which is, which is good and bad, right? It allows me to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, some, you know, it, that feeling you get of being with your people, uh, is certainly something that, that is, is important that I, I don't always have. 
Um, so for me, it's not so much one moment, but sort of an ongoing uh, kind of struggle to find where I fit in. And and how do you how do you use that in your work? Do you ever utilize your own personal experiences as you're trying to help bring people together? Yeah. So I um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago took a group of of Jewish folks to an evangelical uh, church service in Southern okay. California. It's okay. sort of a part of our chapter, and one of the things they said they wanted to do was go see each other's worship service. Okay. And this was the first time they'd ever been to an evangelical service. Mm. Um, and it was challenging. Uh, there was um, some difficult parts of the service. There were parts that they loved, and then there were parts that were difficult for them. Um, and then we all talked about it. What was difficult and why? Uh, there was scripture referenced that references Jewish leaders trying to kill Jesus. It's just uh, part of the New Testament. But um, okay. it was something that they... Even though the pastor sort of explicitly said these Jewish leaders were not bad people, but the, but there was still sort of language and um, implications that they were uncomfortable with, and of course, very much out of their element. For me, having been a, a secular Jew who was being sort of experiencing church services for the first time when I was in college. I remember those moments of, of going to something and not knowing if I belong there and am I betraying my own people for being there. Um, so I, I was, I was emotionally able to sort of be, I think, a helpful presence just to sort of reassure everybody, you know, that there was, um, that, that it was going to be okay. We we're going to talk about mm-hmm. it. And, and the discussion they had was fantastic. It was transformative, but um, you had to get there. You had to get through the hard part first. So it's interesting that we're having this conversation now because what's in the news is the, um, the uproar over the freshman congresswoman, mm-hmm. um, uh, Muslim, mm-hmm. who made um, um, posted a tweet that was offensive to many in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to get your perspective on what she said mm-hmm. and what you think the reaction should be or because a lot of people are calling for her. A lot of people, Republicans specifically mm-hmm. are calling for her to be stripped of her committee assignments in Congress. Mm-hmm. And some are even calling for her resignation. What are your thoughts about all this? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I mean, I think anti-Semitism is unacceptable, whether it's from the left or the right or anywhere. Agreed. Uh, unequivocally. Absolutely. Um, I think we should s- stop using racism and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia as political tools. I think that there's a lot of people who like to call for resignations when it's politically convenient on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of people who are more consistent about if, if X happened, the person should do Y, regardless of whether they're a Democrat or Republican, which I really appreciate. Um, I think that there's also we have to have a little bit of grace for the fact that some people will say things that they do not realize come off a certain way to other people. And I don't know, I didn't read her, her tweet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do believe that um, people need to be educated the right way about how certain language may be fitting into patterns of anti-Semitism or racism. Um, so that even if you didn't mean it that way, this is how it's perceived. Right. And if the person understands that and gets it and changes their behavior, I think that's important. And we should, we should praise that. If they get it and understand it and don't care, 
that's very different. In other words, it's a teachable moment. Yeah. And, and, and we've had a lot of teachable moments lately in the, in, in the public, in the public it. discourse. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that we have to get to a place where, um, when someone says or does something that is unacceptable or that is, no, I don't want to take that back. I'm going to say unacceptable. When someone does or says something that is perceived as being offensive to another party, mm-hmm. then it is an opportunity to educate and say, this is why, mm-hmm. okay, this is, this is why the, the, the tweet was offensive to people in the Jewish community. This is why blackface is offensive to people mm-hmm. in the African American community. Um, and I, I hope that at some point we get to a place where we're not just calling for people to be thrown out. Right. You know, you did this, you're bad, goodbye. Right. You know, your career's over, you, you know, we don't like you. At the same time, we want to hold people accountable. So there's this fine line. And I think, I think as a society, we're kind of grappling with this right now. Mm-hmm. And what is, what is acceptable in terms of holding someone accountable and then when does it cross over the line to the point of ridiculousness mm-hmm. in terms of uh banishing someone pretty much from their career right do, do you get what I'm absolutely saying? yeah and i think I, I think on our good days we're grappling with it on yeah. our bad days i think we're just uh pretty savage frankly yeah. um savage or indifferent both of which are bad mm-hmm. i think that um the thing that is uh, about polarization that makes this worse, in, in my opinion, is that when we're not in community with other people, it's so much easier to not understand or care why they would be offended by something. Right. Um, and we have a responsibility, I think, to understand why something would be offensive to another group. Um, that's our personal responsibility. I believe deeply in personal responsibility. And that's one of the things that we are personally responsible for. It's easier to uh, wash that away when we don't even know people of that group. And, and, and that's, you know, like someone tells a joke. Would you tell that joke in front of a person of that? If not, maybe you shouldn't tell that joke. That, I, I love that point and about community. And it's the reason that we all need to broaden our, our friend group. If, you know, <laughs> seriously, yeah. I mean, because we, we tend to, we're in such silos right now and you can't get to know someone if you don't take time to get to know them. And how many times have we heard stories about people who will go off to college Mm -hmm. and for the first time they are, they're, you know, in a, in a situation where they're with people who don't look like them or don't have the same belief system that they grew up with. And then they find out, that in effect, they are just like them, that they're all the same. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what happens. Absolutely. So, um, tell me how people can get involved with One America. What are your, what are your plans for expanding, mm-hmm. um, beyond the cities that you're already in? So you're, you started in, is it DC? Sure. So, yeah. That was the very first one we did. Okay. So we're, we have nine chapters right now around the okay. country. Um, what we've done a good job, I think, of doing is really diving into those chapters. So we, all the work that we do is local led. We don't go into a city and say, here's what you should do. We don't know. 
we listen to local folks okay. who, who tell us this is what the issue we want to work on is. You know, this is the these are the people who should be at the table. Um, so we've done a really good job of prioritizing the, the, the desires and interests and needs of people in local communities, um, not bringing the media in, shoving cameras in people's faces, um, really respecting the need to build trust. What we've done a bad job at is getting in the paper and spreading all over the country. <laughs> so that's our, those are our next missions. So okay. we, um, we're going to be scaling from nine chapters up o- over 40 in the next year and a half. Um, and we'd love if folks want to get involved, you can start a, a chapter. You can go to oneamericamovement.org. Okay. And there's a link you can click to, to start a chapter in your community. And we help, we help facilitate that. Um, and, uh, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, et cetera. All of those great things, right? So when someone, um, decides they want to start a chapter and you say you help facilitate that. So you help, you help that local chapter decide uh, or figure out how best to have the conversations within that community. Is that, is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah. So we, we have the real, so our board and leadership looks like the divides we're trying to heal, um, which is important, not just because it gives us credibility. It's really things. important. Yeah. Yeah. It's also important because it means we're practicing what we preach. We're not mm-hmm. just telling other people to go have those conversations. Mm-hmm. We're having them internally. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we go into a community, we might have one person say, Hey, I want to start a chapter. I'd love to talk to X group, but I don't know anyone in X group. Can you help? And so we help find that partner. I see. We help them come together. And then we, we do the facilitation for the, for the conversations. We help them sort of navigate the process, give them materials. And I think the last thing is that all of our work is, is guided by science. So all of our work is designed with the best neuroscience research, you know, available, but we don't want to manipulate people with that science. We want to empower them. So when we're doing our projects, we're training people on how the science works. Why, why is it when someone tells you a fact that you don't, that doesn't jive with your belief system, does your brain react the way it reacts? You know, we want to empower people to understand that stuff. What's the answer to that question? <laughs> so it, <laughs> now that you bring it up, <laughs> it's actually it's actually a really good answer. So yeah. the, um, when you hear a fact that counters a deeply held belief, your brain reacts the same way it reacts if someone comes at you with a weapon. Exactly the same. Really, it perceives it as a threat to your identity, and the threats to your identity are perceived the same way as threats to your personal body. So uh, that's why when you tell your uncle at Thanksgiving that, you know, actually this is the case, he doesn't go, oh, you, you're so right, you know. Um, so we have to understand that, that that's not how you change people's minds. And the way that you change people's minds <laughs> is? Hard. Um, <laughs> the way you change people's minds is building a relationship of trust. Right. And then having a different type of conversation. We have the, we have the most binary conversations right now. You're pro-life or pro-choice. You're pro-Trump, you're anti-Trump. We have to have different kinds of conversations where we talk about why we believe what we believe. What are the values that, that bring us to that position? What are the life experiences we've had? We had an, a, an abortion conversation recently with a group of clergy. Really? Very opposite sides of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it was so profoundly different because they were telling personal stories. Two of them were pregnant during the conversation. Mm-hmm. One of them who was pro-life had had his parents had been told, your child is going to have a very serious disease. You need to have an abortion. They didn't. And he didn't have the disease. 
So these these kinds of these kinds of uh, uh, personal experiences bring people to their position, and and they can then understand that. Whereas if you just argue a binary, you don't get anywhere. And that is exactly what I guess is sort of something that's in my gut when I started thinking about um, this podcast and how I, um, as an American citizen and someone who deeply loves this country, but is very distressed by where we are right now in terms of how we talk to each other, what can I do? And what came to me was story. Mm -hmm. Because that's where I live. I mean, that's what I do. I'm a storyteller. I'm a journalist. And to me, the, the basis of all of this is trying to get people to share their stories. And in doing so, we see ourselves in each other. Yeah. And so the conversation becomes very different when it's story-based mm-hmm. as opposed to ideologically based yeah. or policy-based mm-hmm. or faith-based or any of the above because the story is the, the emotional human mm-hmm. part of the connection. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really glad that, that you're doing that work. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're doing your work. (laughs) Thank you. Because, wow, it's, it's so important. It is so important. So, um, oneamericamovement.org. Okay. And we will also link to it on our website and through all of our social media. And it has been an absolute pleasure to meet you and talk with you. And we will have you back as you, as you get up, (laughs) as you scale up to those 40 chapters. We got to get one in Houston. We, we have one in Houston. Well, I, oh, do you really? Yeah. Cause when I was looking at the website, I didn't see that we had one here. Yeah. So it's, it must it's, be brand new. It's very new. It's yeah. very, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause you're in Austin. No, we're in Houston and we're in uh, Utah and Oklahoma, California, West Virginia. Okay. And All then right. a bunch on the East coast. Yeah. Great. So, okay. So Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you very it's much. It's been a I pleasure. It. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And thank you guys for, for watching and listening and for giving him permission to speak and for having the courage to listen. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for giving our guest permission to speak and for having the courage to listen with an open mind. If the mission of Our Voices Matter resonates with you, please like, subscribe, download, and share, and then join the conversation because it really is going to take all of us to make a difference.